0: Good evening, people of Mosaic. Would you stand and sing with us tonight? Hey, if you wanna join us, if you're a woman in the room for on a Tuesday night, we'd love to invite you to the woman's night of worship. For now, let's sing to our King, Jesus, tonight. Praise to the Lord.
1: How's it going, Mosaic? You guys doing all right this evening? Come on. you guys excited to be here tonight? There we go. We can work with that. Hi, my name is Enoch. I get to do tonight's prayer pause. And if you guys have been with us this year, this has been a time for us as a congregation and as a body To slow down, to refocus, to recenter, and to put our attention and affection on the most important thing. So tonight, I get to talk to us about forgiveness, but I want us to kind of preview where we've been, and then we'll start with tonight, okay? So if you remember back in January, uh, Marco started us off from the Lord's Prayer with acknowledging God as Father being able to understand he presents himself in that way for us to know him and what that looks like. And then Josh got to talk to us about what it looks like to have his will be done and not our own. And then last month, Laura got to talk to us about what it looks like to rely on God for daily bread. So tonight's section, we're going to focus in on the Lord's Prayer, where it talks about forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. So, I'm going to kind of break this up into two parts. But the first part, obviously, is asking and pleading with God to forgive us of our sins, right? And in essence, the gospel hinges uh, on the reality that God has saved sinners through his son, Jesus. And that gives us a new identity that calls us forgiven. That is a new name, a new way for us to be known. Because at one time, we were dead to sin. We were enemies of God, and yet through the work of Jesus, we have found ourselves with a new identity, a new name, a new place, and that is forgiven. So to start out, as we focus in on that, we're gonna actually do communion first, which is a little bit different, but I would love for you guys to take the elements, and here's what I'm gonna ask. You can gather with your family if you're sitting next to your family. You can gather with your neighbors, but I would love for this to be a time where gratitude flows out because we recognize the reality that God has saved us, and offered us the identity as forgiven. So would you take some time, pray, enjoy some gratitude, and then I'll come back up and we'll take the elements together. So go and spend some time with prayer. All right, would you gather those elements? Let's remember the work of Jesus and knowing that his body was broken on our behalf. And in that, we can own the identity that's given us as forgiven. So take and eat and remember. And in the same way, take and drink and remember Christ's blood that was poured out on our behalf to be called, reconciled, and forgiven. Take and drink. Amen. I'm gonna give you that. Okay, so that's the first part. We ask and we remember who Jesus is, what he's done, and how that allows us to now live in the identity of being forgiven. Now, it doesn't stop there. The prayer says, Forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sinned against us. I don't know about you guys, but it'd be way easier to just stop at part one. Part two is where it starts to get a little more exciting. So I'm going to put some flesh on the bones to help you understand and kind of give you some of my own experience for what it looks like to not just receive forgiveness, but to then extend it. Because our identity inadvertently affirms or gives us clarity to how we act and how we move forward. Okay. So I uh, was born in Arkansas, but my family actually moved to to South Africa in 1994. Um, We were a missionary family. And we lived there from 1994 to 2007. Beautiful, beautiful experience. A huge part of who I am as a human came from that experience. But we moved back to the States because my parents got divorced, which was no no fun experience. It was really deep. There was a lot of trauma. There was a lot of hardship. There was a lot of substance addiction. There was a lot of hurt. Um, and I found myself in a place where I was very much in, in the, the right to be angry at these people who have hurt my feelings. Um, I don't know if you can... Uh, identify, or maybe you've been the person that to receive those sorts of things. But it's a really trying thing, friends, to have to get to a place where we uh, come face to face with hurt and then sit on what do we do with this, right? And so for me, I have been on a journey of learning how to forgive the things that came from that hurt from my family for a long time. 2019, I actually ended up going to a conference in Atlanta. It was really wonderful. There was a lady that got up on stage, her name was Lisa Turkhurst, and she talked about what it looks like to forgive, and it was really powerful to hear her as she's sharing. One of the things that stuck out to me, I also work at Camp War Eagle full-time, which is really fun. I'm about to go out there literally tomorrow for my 10th summer, which is crazy. I don't feel old until I say stuff like that, and it's like, ugh. Anyway not the point. Um, Lisa Turkhurst on stage is talking to us about forgiveness. She experienced something really traumatic with her husband. And as she was going through therapy, her husband had her do this, or her uh, counselor had her do this really powerful practice. And so when you walked in, you should have seen these little red squares. If you grabbed one, I'll kind of talk to you why I'm giving you a red square. The therapist had her write out everything that she had been hurt by, every effect, every hard thing that came from her trauma with him had her write it out on notebooks. And what she then had to do was take this red square and over each one, she had to vocalize, what my feelings will not allow, the blood of Jesus has already covered. What my feelings will not allow, the blood of Jesus has covered. And what it did, as I'm hearing her share this story, I was realizing how hard it has been for me to experience and to live out forgiveness because I was basing it on my feelings. I was hurt by what my family had done. I was really disappointed that the people that introduced Jesus to me failed me in such a big way. But what I learned and what I was invited into was recognizing that because I have the identity of being forgiven, what my feelings will not allow Jesus has already paid for. And that was a really scary thing for me to have to admit and have to work towards. And I'm here to tell you, I'm still learning. Okay. I went through a step study. I love therapy. I would advocate for both of those things for anybody in the room. But also I would just invite you to recognize that there's an opportunity because we have been forgiven to extend that same grace to someone else. That where your feelings may not allow, the blood of Jesus has paid and has forgiven them. So, we're going to end our time with a little time to practice. Again, I work at Camp Wriggle. I love a little visual. I love practice. I work with kids all the time and college students, and so we're going to practically do this. Maybe this is something you can do as a family, you can do as an individual, but I would love for you to recall something this week, something that you've been processing, some way that you've been wronged, and to sit and to think about because you have been forgiven in Jesus. What does it look like for you to remind yourself that what my feelings may not allow, the blood of Jesus is forgiven, and that you would courageously step towards not just being forgiven, but to become a forgiver? Okay, so we're gonna take some time. You can spend some time in that, and then we're gonna sing some songs. So I'm gonna pray this prayer over you really quick. This is from one of my favorite authors of all time, Andrew Murray, a book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. Here we go. Lord Jesus, my blessed teacher, teach thou me to forgive and to love. Let the power of thy love make the pardon of my sins such a reality that forgiveness as shown by thee to me and by me to others may be the very joy of heaven. Show me whatever in my intercourse with fellow men might hinder my fellowship with God so that my daily life in my own home and in society may be the school in which strength and confidence are gathered for the prayer of faith. Amen. Amen.
0: assess that. Giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours. Nothing we can give can match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit, amen. We truly believe that Jesus is better, I invite you, if you believe that yourself, to sing with us about our hope. He's sure, He's steady, He's our anchor, He's our firm foundation. So let's lift our voices tonight. Glory. He's our king. the word of God
2: on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding when the wine was gone Jesus' mother said to him they have no more wine woman why do you involve me Jesus replied my hour has not yet come His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And Nearby stood six stone, stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine. And after the guests have had too much to drink, but you save the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed him. And the people said, This is the word of the Lord.
3: Lord. Good evening. You can be seated. Hello, Mosaic family, and happy sunny Saturday. Sunny, warm Saturday. My yard looks horrible because I was supposed to mow it a week ago. And um, to be honest, I really wasn't that upset that I couldn't mow it all week, but today I was a little bit embarrassed, especially since my family's in town for Mother's Day. That's my mom and dad right there. (laughs) Um, Hey, happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the room. Tomorrow, not today, tomorrow, happy Mother's Day. Um, I know from being our student team leader here at Mosaic, I know uh, how big of a deal the mother's role is in all of our families um, and also in all of our ministries. The mission trips that we took this year, the spring break trips, all five of our high school trips that went all over the nation, each had a mom on the trip, and I can't tell you the stability, the 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 peace that all the moms brought. Um, this week, this Wednesday, the whole student team and all of the student team cell group leaders are going over to the Bertrams' house, and and um, Holly is making us all a meal and hosting all of us. And so, to all the moms who host and who love who pour themselves out so frequently. Thanks, we love you. You are our rocks and you hold us together. Okay, uh, where we have been and where we're going. We're in the book of John and we just finished the seven I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And we are moving tonight onto the seven miracles. And these are seven little logos or drawings that our media resourcing team did for the seven miracles. Can you figure them out? The first one is Jesus turning water into wine tonight. The second one is Jesus healing the official's son. The third one is Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. The fourth one, you probably all guessed it, is feeding the 5,000. The, uh, the fifth one is Jesus allowing Peter to walk on water. The sixth one is Lazarus being raised from the dead and, of course, could not forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, so miracles, miracles, I feel like I'm saying that word weirdly now. <laughs> miracle is something that I, I'm, I'm sure all of us have a definition that are probably, our, our definitions are probably pretty similar to one another. We all have a pretty good understanding of, of what a miracle is, and yet maybe we don't. Maybe it's, it's good to get all on the same page tonight, so we're going to take a moment just to uh, make a, a definition of miracle here in one place that we can all rally around You probably heard of the Disney movie called Miracle, about the 1980 US men's Olympic hockey team that um, defeated the Soviet team against all odds, the the underdogs of the century, and it was this rallying moment for America because it was in the middle of the Cold War and, and we had beat the Soviet team and we weren't supposed to, and oh, what a miracle! I love that movie. It was one of my favorite movies of my childhood, and I, and I don't really know why, because I don't really love sports that much, but it's a good movie. I forced all the students last summer during Antioch to watch Miracle for one of our like, student movie nights, and it really was quite the flop, so don't ever watch Miracle with was students, and the one saving grace of it was Brandon Guthrie, one of our student ministry residents this past year, was with us, and he was so hyped the entire last scene, which is like 25 minutes of the final game where they won, and he was yelling the whole time, and the students were yelling with him, but it really was because of Brandon, not because of the movie. But anyways, this movie is named Miracle, as if the U.S. team winning that game was a miracle. Was it? I think that that was more of a situation of luck, maybe. Or maybe we could say providence. Providence is when things um, working in the laws of this world come together for someone's good. So biblical providence, obviously, is when God, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God, by his hand, works things in this world, following by the laws of this world together for his glory and for our good. My parents have this story, my family has this story of when we moved houses, when we were, I was in elementary school, and and our parents felt called to, to move us into this home that was a little bit more than we could afford, and yet all these doors were opening up, and they just kept feeling like God was saying, move into this home, buy this home, it'll be okay, And so they just took a huge leap of faith and they bought this house, even though there was all these things that had to be done to it. And they were overwhelmed with fear, quite honestly, of what was going to happen, but trusting that God was going to be faithful. The night that they signed the papers, guess what happened? A hailstorm in Tulsa and the roof was destroyed. It was already destroyed, but the roof was destroyed and insurance paid for a brand new roof, brand new paint upstairs, and carpet. I think that's the story. If I'm wrong, don't correct me now. And my parents tell that story like it was a miracle. I'm sure they've even said it before. God worked a miracle. He did it. But he did, by his providence, work natural things, behaving by the laws of this world, a hailstorm, together, for his glory, and for the good of my family. Biblical providence. So what's a miracle? Well, a miracle is a supernatural event that defies the laws of this world. Not God working things together by the laws of this world, but a supernatural event that defies the laws of this world. So if God could have just used his providence, like he did throughout The whole story of the Old Testament, if he could have just used his providence to continue to work things together for the good of his people and for his glory, why miracles? Why? Well, because miracles validate the message of the speaker. Jesus performed miracles so that his voice might be validated. We are not meant to worship the miracle. The point is not about the things that happened that defied the laws of this world, the supernatural things, but God used miracles in the ministry of Jesus to validate his voice, to validate his message, to to put his stamp of approval on his messenger. So the miracles that we read about are meant to validate our faith in Jesus, they're meant to deepen our trust in Jesus, and they're meant to direct us ultimately to a destination to his kingdom, directing us to a destination kind of like a sign. And actually, at the end of John, the way that John kind of sums up the miracles in John 20 talks about miracles as if they were signs. John actually uses the word signs. It, it says this, John or Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these ones are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus performed signs so that his name would be validated, so that we would trust what he is saying, so that his gospel would take root in our lives, and so that we might believe. And ultimately, so that we might have growing faith that leads us step by step, day by day, to the destination, which is not the sign, but which is Jesus and his kingdom. The good news that Jesus was preaching as he he went throughout town to town was the kingdom is near. Repent and believe, be baptized, the kingdom is near. Not look at me, look what I can do. (laughs) No, that wasn't Jesus, but God, the Father, look what I will do through my son. Listen to him. What he's saying is true. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is near. So Enoch, who actually is like my best friend, he and I have been roommates for seven years. So this was his first night to, to um, like kind of lead the congregation through the prayer pause, and this is my first night to teach. And so we're going to have fun tonight just... Thanking God for what he's doing in our lives. But um, Enoch, I don't know why I turned around and look at the screen, uh, mentioned working at camp. I moved to Northwest Arkansas also because I worked at Camp War Eagle. I grew up in Tulsa. I went to college in Oklahoma City. And um, when I was a freshman in college, I got a job over a Skype interview, not a Zoom interview, a Skype interview to work at Camp War Eagle. And I remember driving all the way out here from Tulsa two and a half hours into my drive And I thought, am I even going the right way? Does Camp War Eagle even exist? And then I see this sign that says War Eagle area. And I think if there is a Camp War Eagle, then it's probably in the War Eagle area. So I'm going in the right direction. And then I start to wonder, five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, and I'm like, am I even going the right way? I must have missed something. And I see this next sign, the first one that actually said Camp War Eagle. Ah, I'm going the right way. My faith is restored. And then I keep driving, and I'm like, oh my gosh, for sure I could have gotten to this place by now, like did I make her on turn, and just when I start to lose my faith in where I'm going, I see the sign, and I gain the assurance that I need to keep going. And then it happens all over again, like 10 minutes here, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes here, and it might not seem that much, for, for those of you who have driven to Camp Eagle before, you know that it's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Where is this place? Where is this place? And by the time I finally reached the final sign, the front gate, I had complete peace. I knew that I had arrived. All the signs had brought me to the right destination. I was there, and I could rest. The signs did what they were supposed to do. But if I stopped at one of the signs along the way and was like, hey, I'm here to be a counselor, obviously that'd be dumb. I needed to get to the destination. Hey, guess what? I worked at camp for like eight summers, seven seven summers, I don't know, something like that. I still go out there and teach and lead worship and hang out. I go to camp all the time. I've been there so many times that I don't even need the signs anymore. I didn't even remember where the signs were. I forgot they existed until I took these pictures. Hear me when I say this, I didn't need the signs anymore because I've become so acquainted with the destination. I've become so acquainted with where I'm going that the signs aren't even needed. That's one of my prayers for us, church, that we would become so acquainted with Jesus and his kingdom that even the incredible things he does in our lives to point us in his direction continually and validate his voice, we don't even need because our hearts know him, because we abide with him. So I'm gonna pray to that end, and then we're gonna dive into the story of him turning water into wine. Lord, help us to know you so deeply, so deeply, that we wouldn't even need signs of your glory because your spirit in us would be enough. Help us to hear you, help us to see you, to feel you, to taste and see that you are good. Oh God, we love you so much. Give us wisdom right now, please. In your name we pray, amen. So diving right in. John chapter two, verses one through three says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. (laughs) She She probably didn't say it like that. She probably was like, they don't have any more wine. They don't have any more wine. On the third day, it says, what does that mean? In John chapter one, we see Jesus begin his ministry. We see John the Baptist baptize Jesus and and, and declare him as the Messiah, as the sent one, the chosen one. And then scripture says on the next day, and then on the next day, and then on the next day, and there are three of those. So four total days where Jesus is meeting his disciples, his first five disciples and calling them to himself. Then on the fourth day, he meets Nathanael. Nathanael's the one at the fig tree. And Jesus is like, hey, I saw you at the fig tree. And he's like, what? That's magic. How did you see me at the fig tree? And then Jesus is like, because I did. And then Nathaniel's like, okay, then I, I believe in you. And then they have more conversation. I forgot what it was. But that was the fourth day. And now this is saying on the third day after Jesus called Nathaniel, what's three plus four? Seven. We know from John chapter one that Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. In the beginning, Jesus is creator. What did Jesus and the Father and the Spirit do after they created the earth and the world? On the seventh day, they rested. They sat back. They gazed at the beauty of what they had created, and they said, this is good. I think it's so cool that on the seventh day of Jesus's ministry, he attends a wedding. He sits back. He rests. He basks in the beauty of a covenant sign. One of the most beautiful things that God can give his people that shows his glory, the covenant sign of marriage. So then Mary said, the wine is gone. There is no more wine. This is a big deal. Back then, this was a shame and honor culture. That means that one person could bring shame or one person could bring honor on an entire family based off of their actions. It was actually pretty extreme. And, and weddings were, were also pretty extreme in this shame and honor culture. Actually, a, a bride's family could sue a groom's family for not being proper hosts. And that running out of wine was for sure not being proper hosts. I, I feel like nowadays, like if they ran out of drinks or food or something like that at a wedding, like everyone would have a little bit of grace. But I know that back then, that was a big deal, looking at a potential lawsuit. And so Mary coming to Jesus and saying, they have no more wine, she's a little bit frantic. Now, I think a lot of us read that line of her saying to Jesus that they're out of wine, and we think that Mary was expecting Jesus to perform a miracle. We just think that that line is indicative of her faith. That totally could be the case. Mary birthed Jesus miraculously. And so she knew who he was. She, understand that he was a, she understood that he was the son of God. And she probably expected him to do incredible things. But he hadn't performed miracles yet. So it could have been faith of hers that was asking Jesus to move and perform something incredible and save the day, it also could have just been that she was leaning into Jesus as a part of her family. Joseph, Jesus' father, would have been dead at this point. And so Jesus, being the oldest son, probably took on a lot of responsibility in the household. It's very possible that that Mary was just approaching Jesus um, as a leader of her household. Also knowing who Jesus is, the compassion, the wisdom he walks with and saying, will you help us? Will you do something? Whether she approached him in family or in faith, I think what's important is just seeing that she approached him. I'm convicted by how often I approach God, pleading for him to do something specific or expecting or hoping for him to show up in a really big way. And I wanna be a little bit more like Mary who just brings my problem to him, saying, I trust you. Hey, Jesus, they have no more wine. (gasps) I love you. You're compassionate. You are kind. You are slow to anger. You are good. You bless your people. What are you gonna do? I trust you. Reading on. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Hey, what stands off the page immediately as we're reading this is Jesus calling his mother woman and then saying, why do you involve me? Happy Mother's Day, everybody. I also realized when I read it, I, I, I put aggression in it that maybe shouldn't have been there. Um, <laughs> Jesus was not being rude to his mom here. We know that is the case. He was not being rude. He was being really weird. I think he was being really odd. What, what this um, actually translates more um, carefully to is Jesus saying ma'am or, or madam or him saying miss these issues are not my own. Hey, ma'am, these family matters are not my concern. Hey, miss, that is your concern and not mine. Okay, so, so more kind, but still really weird that Jesus is like disengaging himself from the situation and also from his mother, so it seems, right? Hey, the only other time in the book of John that Jesus talks to his mom is actually when he's on the cross. It's actually when he's on the cross, he looks down at his mother and he says the same thing to her. He calls her woman or miss or ma'am or madam or whatever. Behold your son. He points over to John, his best friend who wrote this book. He says the same thing to him but opposite. Behold your mother. The only other time that Jesus refers to his mother in this way, he is also distancing himself from her, but this time more finite. He is actually saying, I'm no longer your son. I now am fully, my identity is only son of God, son of man, not son of Mary. John, my best friend, behold your mother now. It's not quite that extreme, but in this verse, Jesus is still doing the same thing. He's distancing himself from his mother. And then what does he say? My hour has not yet come. Oh my gosh, wait. We were just talking about how the other time that Jesus referred to his mother, as woman, or even talked to her in John was also during his hour. What is his hour? In case you don't know, In John 5, verses 28 through 29, in John 7, verses 30, in John 8, verse 20, in John 12, verses 23 and 27, in John 13, verse 1, in John 17, verse 1, Jesus' hour is talked about, and every single time, what it's referring to is his death. When his hour is talked about, what it's referring to is the passion of Jesus when he died on the cross. So what can we learn here But Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Well, first, I think it's weird that he distanced himself from his mother a little bit, referring to her as woman. These matters are not my matters to bear. Why are these matters not your matters to bear, Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why. He says, because my hour has not yet come. That's confusing. These matters are not mine to bear because I'm not dying yet. He was just at a wedding. And they ran out of wine. And Mary came and asked them to help out with the situation. No, this isn't my thing to figure out because I'm not dying yet. That's kind of what happened. This is weird. But what we can take from this, I think, thus far, is that somehow the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, is a big part of the story of him turning water into wine. We move on. John 2, verses seven through eight says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Jesus involved servants to carry out his first miracle in his ministry. Sounds kind of like the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the lowly. And he didn't just ask these servants to like do a little part behind the scenes. He asked them to bring the water that they didn't quite know if it was going to turn into wine or not to the master of the banquet. The, The most vulnerable thing they could have done to be chastised or be a part of the anger and a part of the fright that would happen after the master of the banquet is served water. Such a cool thing that Jesus involves the servants and that they follow him and have faith. We'll continue reading. John uh, chapter two, verses nine through 10. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. He did it. Jesus did it. He turned water into wine. So, what can we see through that? Well, if if we if we kind of pull away from the passage for a second, and we like we look at the rest of Scripture, you know, what does this moment illuminate? Or what does this moment hearken back to? Or what does this moment even foreshadow? Well, turning water into wine reveals Jesus as Creator, just like John had just talked about in John one. If he can create something out of nothing, then he must be able to be a creator. And not only did Jesus create something out of nothing, he also created an aged thing. What came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> I'm not saying that, I'm, that, that creation theology is that he created an aged world. You can email your questions to Nick about that. But maybe if he created aged wine, he could create an aged world. Also think back to the Nile River, when the water turned to blood, in an act of God to deliver his people in one of the most incredible ways that the world would ever see? Okay, well, let's think all the way forward now toward the Last Supper, right before the hour, right before the Passion of Jesus, when he held up the wine and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, remember me. How oh, could it be? that just like God turned water into wine, water into blood to deliver his people, so he is turning water into wine or symbolically blood to symbolize the deliverance of his people. There's so many more things, I think, that you could just dig through like the Old Testament and find all the ways that that Jesus turning water into wine reveals his glory. But I think where the passage is actually leading us is the end right here, Everyone brings out the choicest wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I think where this text is leading us is to see that Jesus is indeed the perfect bridegroom. Hey, if we go back to his hour or forward, whatever, to his hour again, Jesus on the cross What does he do? He sips the sour wine. He sips the sour wine on our behalf. And what the master of the banquet says right here is that no one ever puts, no one ever saves the good wine to the end. They keep the sour wine to the end, they keep the bad wine to the end. And I kind of just picture Jesus at this wedding feast, like sipping on the wine, maybe thinking about his coming sorrow, thinking about the sour wine that he would sip on the cross, taking the weight of our sin. Man, it's rich. So if the normal earthly bridegroom saves the bad wine for the end, and Jesus is the perfect bridegroom that saves the good wine for the end, What does that sound like? It sounds to me like the difference between Jesus and Satan. I want you to look at this uh, quote. Satan offers pleasure followed by plight and God offers the cross followed by a crown. Don't we all know what it's like to be tempted by Satan? Don't we all know what it's like to hear those words promising pleasure? Don't we all know what it's like to want to dive in, to want to follow the ways of the world, to want to be bitter, to want to be angry, to want to be upset with our neighbor or hold things against them, and yet Satan will offer you those pleasures, but guess what's following? Plight, destruction, despair. From dust you came and the dust you shall return. By the ways of this world, you are walking toward death. But Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, He stepped in, and he offers a cross. He says, take up your cross and follow me. My power is made perfect in your weakness. I sympathize with you. I'm with you. Take up your cross and follow me, because what's waiting for you is a crown. What's waiting for you is glory. What's waiting for you is a better wine. Jesus started his Ministry at a wedding. And he will end his ministry at a wedding where he's pouring out blessing, crowns, if you will, over his church, over his people. Isaiah talks about that wedding. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. In verse nine, in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. We also have a really cool picture of this wedding feast in Revelation. Chapter 19, verses seven through nine, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Friends, family, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Picturing Jesus that day, having the compassion to change the water into wine, little did the people know what he was portraying. The fulfillment of all things perfect, the fulfillment of all things good. Sitting down humbly sipping the wine, watching the people enjoy the fruit of of, a miracle, a sign from God, thinking about the coming wedding feast, thinking about you and I sitting there and him adorning us in glory and calling us his own for eternity because we were willing to take up our cross and call on his name and follow him. The conclusion of this passage in John, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. We know about the marriage supper of the lamb. We know about the ways that this miracle alludes to the hour of Christ, to him being revealed and glorified fully as son of God who will bear the weight of the sin for the world. Let's pull back a little bit, okay? Let's pull back. And let's just thank him that he gave us signs, that he gave us things like these so that we might believe in him. And may we become so acquainted with the destination of the kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we walk with him radically day by day. Oh, what a good day that's gonna be. Let's pray before we worship again. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the better groom. Picture you standing at the altar us as your bride, just walking in and you being so in awe of our beauty. You love us so deeply. You want good for us. You want glory for us. Help us to, by these signs and even by the signs in our own life, the miracles that we witness. help us by those miracles and by those signs to become more acquainted with you. For our faith to be renewed and for our our direction to be focused on the destination. We love you, Jesus, our King and our Bridegroom. In your name we pray. Amen.
4: You guys stand as we sing this time. you give life you are love you bring life to the darkness you give hope you restore every heart that is broken
0: God, would you help us to keep in step with your spirit help us to abide close to you as we depend and grow on you father would you keep us near if you know this would you sing it with me for my way Father, we praise you. We, we worship you, not the miracle, but you, Father. So Lord, as we prepare our hearts to go, would you help us keep in step with your spirit? We pray these things in your name, amen. Church, if you need prayer, we'll have some members from our prayer team down front. We'll have some pastors in the lobby if you'd love to connect with anybody. Let's uh, prepare our hearts to leave and let's go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the people said... Thanks be to God. We'll see you next week, church.